Tracked and Traced is sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues by supporting quality journalism across all media platforms with a unique program of education and public outreach. Learn more at pulitzercenter.org. Hey everyone, I'm Antoine Scott, and this is Tracked and Traced, a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. Today, we're talking about surveillance capitalism. We'll hear from WDET's Russ McNamara, and then we'll talk to Rob Johnson from the Institute for New Economic Thinking. And later, Tim O'Reilly, the founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media, will join us. So, what do you know about surveillance capitalism? How much do you think your data is worth? How far do you think that data goes? Well, I want you to do a little exercise with me. Take out your phone, open the settings, and see how many apps you have sharing permissions. And once you get that number, I want you to think of all the opportunities that there are for you to be targeted digitally. And while you're doing that, first we'll hear from WDET's Russ McNamara as he tries to find out who owns our data and if it's even safe. Is your online data secret? Is it safe? Is the collection of your interests, political leanings, relationships, location, something people care about for this group of young adults? Eh. I mean, honestly, there's nothing interesting about me, so I don't really care. <laughs> How about you? Not great. It's pretty shady. How about you? Uh, I personally do not care. As long as they don't come at me, like, personally, they can have my information. Indifference and apathy from that trio at the MSU Museum. Some like Jalen here aren't too worried, even though they clearly think they should be. It actually doesn't, like, bother me too much. And I totally get that sentiment, though it seems like you can't go more than a couple of months. The credit monitoring firm Equifax reports a major new data breach. The company says that it could affect roughly 143 million Americans, or more than a third of the U.S. population. Oh yeah, that one got me. You just can't go too long. That data breach at the Target company over the holidays was far worse than first reported. The nation's third largest retailer said today that up to 110 million customers were affected, well over the initial estimate of 40 million. <sighs> yeah, that one got me too. Like I was saying, data breaches are hard to escape. The breach into the Marriott Hotel chain's database is one of the biggest computer hacks in history, second only to the breaches at Yahoo that affected 3 billion accounts. Yup. Judy Woodruff on NewsHour is my credit ratings angel of doom. Those are all instances where personal information was forcibly taken. Companies worth trillions of dollars are using personal information in ways you might not expect. Often, it's given freely. Other times, it's coerced. For example, between your GPS-enabled smartphone, the agreements you have to sign for using apps or social media, it might seem like there's no expectation of privacy. In jail, it's even worse than you might think. People were all required to, everybody who was incarcerated was required to make a voice print. And if you didn't make the voice print, like read the statements they told you to read, the words they told you to read, you would not be allowed to use the phone. Bianca Tylek is the executive director of Worth Rises, a nonprofit dedicated to dismantling the prison industry and those who profit from it. Tylek is referring to the business practices of Securus Technologies and other jail telecoms that have been reported on exhaustively by outlets like The Intercept and Vice. If you work your way up the chain of command from Securus, you'll find Platinum Equity, which is owned by Tom Gores. He also owns the Detroit Pistons, and I believe that's what they call a local angle. Well, it is if you're from Michigan or a fan of the NBA. Anyway, Securus Technologies doesn't consider their product to be a voice print. They describe it as... Our platform includes a voice identification technology. It uses a proprietary algorithm to generate a numerical formula based on an individual's voice. Okay, so they get non-voice prints or numerical formulas based on an individual's voices using a proprietary algorithm. Then what? They're recording people's voices and then creating voice print databases 
that they're selling to law enforcement. A judge put a stop to that, but jail telecom companies have other ways of making money, like bidding for big contracts at one of the country's 3,200 jails or prisons and charging for inmates' calls to family and calls to lawyers. Securus has routinely recorded and handed over privileged calls. Those are calls between people who are in jail and their attorneys, which are protected constitutionally to prosecutors and law enforcement. Previously, jail telecoms have been quite eager to hand that information to police and prosecutors. And Securus's argument to that for the longest has been, it's not our responsibility what law enforcement does with our data. A spokesperson for Securus says they do not record or access calls to private numbers. The company is not turning over the calls. It's a jail or prison employee that is looking them up and handing them to prosecutors. Coincidentally, Securus has paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars in settlements in cases in California, Kansas, and other states for recording privileged calls. A judge put a stop to that practice, too. Securus and other jail telecoms are still making money off prisoners' calls, though due to reforms, less so after the FCC put a cap on how much those companies could charge. As for whose responsibility it is to control what is done to our data, well, that's a big gray area, and we'll get there for now. I don't know if you've ever read an automobile's privacy policy. Oh, I've never actually read pretty much any privacy policy. That's right. I think I may be one of the few humans alive who have actually read a privacy policy. Jeff Fowler is a tech reporter for The Washington Post. He's probably right. He and an expert tore apart a car to figure out all the data it was collecting. It said very little. It said GM had the right to collect pretty much whatever they wanted for whatever purpose and to hold on to it indefinitely. Ah, there it is again. Whatever purpose. And it's just so much information. Yeah, so how much does my car, in my case, because I drive a uh, GMC Terrain, how much does it know about me? An awful lot. Uh Uh-oh. Those computers... Um, Just that infotainment system, which again is just one of the many computers in a car, can collect and generate gigabytes and gigabytes of data per hour. Okay, so that's a lot. But it's just location data, right? No! We found uh, contacts taken from our phone. We found calendar entries, music, all kinds of things that basically would have let whoever had access to that computer we construct our lives. Is there any indication automakers would use this for nefarious ends, as it were? Well, depends on how you define nefarious. <laughs> but, for example, already we know that GM has run a test where they tracked the location of people uh, and tried to pair that with what they were listening to on the radio to try to see if they could maybe sell that to radio advertisers. So, for example, they know would know that people who uh, listen to country music prefer Tim Hortons over McDonald's, and then maybe McDonald's could try to advertise to them. So if you think that's bad, well, it's kind of all your fault. I think a lot of people don't realize that the moment you plug your phone into a car, either through you know the USB connection or connect over Bluetooth, your phone is probably sending over personal data to the car's computer. Even if the company doesn't do anything particularly evil with your information, that doesn't necessarily mean others won't. Everything from McDonald's and Kroger to Planned Parenthood had data breached. Fowler says that means others can get your information and use it against you, from bad actors to state actors. But then let's talk about nefarious. The more data you collect, the more problems you generate. There's also the government, right? Mm -hmm. And there are lots of cases where courts or good governments or bad governments out there might want this data to know where a person was and what they were doing. And when I ask GM, how often does it comply with a government request for data about our driving? It wouldn't say. But once you're home and not on a four-wheeled computer, you're fine, right? And of course, you're always giving up something, right? You're still going to know, say that you're um, cooking dinner or brushing your teeth or something. We, we still learn something private. But is that worth the value that you get out of the system? Actually, this guy is a Lanson Sample, an associate professor in computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan. He's working on something called Privacy Mike. Check, check one. Not quite. More like... Privacy Mike deals with frequencies outside the normal range for human ears, and still that range is jam-packed with useful information for 
animals and corporations. Normally we think about hearing from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, but there's lots of frequencies of vibration that happen outside of that range. In fact, ultrasound has a lot of really unique, interesting uh, sounds that happen up there that, I mean, we don't think of them as sounds, but they're acoustic vibrations. And so by using microphones that specifically look at ultrasound, we're able to identify things in the home like uh, TVs are on, your toothbrush, you're using your toothbrush, your lights are on, um, those sorts of things. Oh, neat. So there is a push to make these products. So Privacy Mic is, is focused at creating uh, microphones that inherently remove speech and gives consumers um, strong guarantees that their personal uh, and private conversations are not being recorded, while also allowing computing systems to understand what's happening in the environment around them. And it's not just audio. Sample and crew are working on a camera that can detect if someone falls and send help without recording your day-to-day -day events. In the camera itself has a privacy coprocessor where it goes and removes all person-identifiable information and just replaces you or the subject as a stick figure. And in that case, we can show, and, and we're still doing this research, it's ongoing, but we've shown here are our visual interventions. So it can be a stick figure or maybe just the outline of a person, or maybe we, we swap their face with somebody else's face and say, which one of these are you willing to give to this third party. And I think that's a much more clear transaction. Like they know exactly what they're giving up. Yeah, because from a functional standpoint, it's not important who has fallen. It's just that someone has fallen. Right. So I know what you're thinking. Oh, companies love this stuff, right? The established companies have not been as interested in uh, privacy, Mike, other than people who are specifically trying to find a solution for this space. Oh, okay. So what can we do about entities who are set on all of this data collection? Li Chen is the senior staff attorney and the Adams chair for internet rights at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He hates that question. Is there a way that consumers can kind of protect themselves, you know, right now? I don't, is, it, is it just a matter of knowing what you're getting into? Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to know. I mean, I think the, one of the things I like the least about talking to journalists about the privacy problem is they always ask me, what, what, what advice do you have for individuals? What should people do to protect themselves? And honestly, there's really very little that you can do other than to not you know, engage. It's not, from my perspective, for instance, I don't use Facebook. It's not clear to me that there's a safe way to do that if you want to protect your privacy. Do you think consumers and society as a whole have kind of backed uh, ourselves into a corner when it comes to agreeing to share some of this data and this information? Because it's hard to function in normal society without being very much online, it seems. Uh, well, I mean, you know, agreeing is too strong a word, right? I mean, agreeing implies that People a know what they're what they're agreeing to, uh, and are making sort of a conscious decision. I'd say that you know a lot of things are not a matter of agreement. There's just sort of a matter of what is a path of least resistance. Remember this. I don't know if you've ever read an automobile's privacy policy. Oh, I've never actually read pretty much any privacy policy. Yeah, companies aren't big on consent. Oh uh, yeah, everyone in there agreed to it grudgingly or not. No, it's more like they ch checked the box to use the thing and they don't know what the consequences are. That is something, but I wouldn't call it agreement. I wouldn't call it anything like consent. It's more like acceptance and sort of like hope that things won't go bad. Chen is getting philosophical about the whole thing. Have you ever heard of the uh, French sociologist philosopher Michel Foucault? Heard of, yes. Studied, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's very difficult. He writes impenetrably and that sort of, you know, European, arrogant, semi-structural style. But, but he said something that I love. And he said, people know what they do, but they don't know what they do does. And, you know, there is a very un like way of saying things. Um, and yet... I was struck by it because I think it's so true. People are online, they're doing things, but they don't know what the secondary effects are, how it pulls together or what it actually does to the world. Basically, we don't truly know what we are getting ourselves into and companies make it as difficult to follow as possible. And that's the point. 
Those that trade in your likes, dislikes, and location want your focus on the latest shiny object, so you don't realize they know everything about you and are trading that info for cash. Um, you know, we're seeing that with Facebook, right? You know, the internal research papers that keep coming out, their attempts to get at what we do does, because, you know, Facebook likes to talk about what we do. Like, we're connecting, we're sharing, we're doing, but what does that do? under these conditions. Parasitic tech companies collecting and selling information and bad actors stealing information. Chen says the European Union, despite their own slow processes, has been clamping down. Well, I don't think the United States has been leading the way for changing this area for a while. I think we've been we've been a little slow. I think the EU has been has moved a little faster than us. It's moved faster than us on privacy. It's moved faster than us on on um, competition and unfair competition issues. The U.S. Congress loves hauling in social media executives for hearings. It happened three times during 2021. But here we are. The digital divide is as wide as ever. And the Wild West of data collection and distribution continues, while septuagenarian politicians like Senator Richard Blumenthal try to figure out the concept of a burner Instagram account with a Facebook exec. Will you commit to ending Finsta? Finsta is slang for, for a type of account. Okay, it's will you not, end it's not that type of account? We, I, I'm not sure I under, understand exactly what you're asking. So until politicians get it right, I guess it's on us to be vigilant. Or not. Uh, it makes me feel uncomfortable and I'm not okay with it, but I'm not going to delete my social media either. That's Isabel back at the MSU Museum. If people truly want to change how our information is handled and limit what can be collected the collective will have to take a stand and show these huge companies exact. Oh, GM and Facebook have joined up to create a new Pokemon Go-based app that farms Bitcoin. Except. That was WDET's Russ McNamara. That kind of report, you know, just really shows us how our data exists. You know, it's everywhere and it's really not safe. But, you know, today is not all about doom and gloom. So we chatted with someone who is more of a digital optimist, and that's Tim O'Reilly. Tim O'Reilly is the founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media. He's also credited with coining the phrases Web 2.0 and open source software. He's written several books, including WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. In the world of big tech and big data, Tim O'Reilly knows a lot. And as of late, he's been writing about antitrust and government innovation in the tech sector. I have been in the tech industry uh, since the late 70s, I hate to say. <laughs> uh, I was originally a technical writer, and then I became a, a computer book publisher, and then a conference producer. And the biggest part of my business today is, uh, is an online learning platform for uh, technologists, you know, programmers, and, and other people like that. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we we are certainly part of the platform capitalism crowd uh, in the sense that we we uh, we have an online service, but it's subscription based, not advertising based. Uh, in my free time, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about uh, uh, big tech and antitrust, and in particular from the point of view of uh, how do we get the companies to take their responsibilities seriously. Uh, to really every constituent uh, who, who is part of their ecosystem. Uh, there's a lot of focus in the industry on, for example, when you bring up surveillance capitalism, well, are they breaking their contract with their users? And, and effectively, you know, I consider the real issue is not the surveillance. It's the, uh, it's the fact that they're not using our data for us. They're using it against us. And, and I would love to see us reframe the, the, the argument in that direction. But, but I'm also looking at, at when I look at a company like Amazon, which is also an advertising, increasingly an advertising-based business. And it's not so much that they're using the data against their customers, it's that they're using it against their suppliers. Uh, they're, they're effectively using advertising as a way to extract more of revenue from their marketplace participants. And it's these asymmetries of power and why is it that companies like Google, you know, Google started out a company saying, you know, uh, do no evil. And now we look at them 20 years on and they look just like everybody else. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about why is that? 
And what is it about our society and our economy that you know turns idealists into uh, uh, um, you know robber barons? So I was you know in San Francisco with you for one of these conferences where we started to talk about you know how important our data is. So I guess that would be my first question to our listeners: is how valuable is our data to you know to Fagma, to Facebook, to Amazon, to Microsoft, to Google, to Apple? I've done some analysis of that. And I have to say, individually, it's not all that valuable in the sense that, you know, literally, if you look at uh, Facebook's total revenue and you divide it by the number of, uh, of users that they have, uh, it's worth about, uh, you know, $36 a year, you know, per user. That's how much revenue they get. And that's not even how much profit they get. So if you, you basically said, well, let's you know pay you a royalty on your data, maybe you would get 10 bucks a year. But if it's 30, 40, 50 bucks a year worth of data that they uh, value that they get out of my data, you go, man, I get a heck of a lot more than 50 bucks a year worth of services from Google. So I think of it as a barter transaction. And we're pretty well compensated for the most part. And you know, if people are choosing to use these services, it, you know, there's this sort of idea that somehow they're uh, doing something bad, and uh, you know, simply by using our data, and I, I think no, they use our if they use our their da- our data for us, uh, you know, like Google is spying on me. You could say every time I'm using Google Maps, and it says it's uh, you know it's normally 20 minutes to your destination, but it's now it's 29 because there's more traffic. You know, they're spying on everybody who has Google Maps in order to make that determination. That's how they know how much traffic there is, but they're doing it for us, and we all go great. That was awesome. I knew to take a different route or to go later. But then when they, for example, uh, you know, send us to uh, misinformation on YouTube because their algorithms determine that it's more profitable or when Facebook is like, hey, we want to, uh, you know, this is the kind of content that makes people most addicted. They're using our data against us. And that's the conversation that I think we ought to be having. You know, because I believe that, you know, so data collection enables enormous new powerful services. And the the fundamental question is, are these companies violating the compact that they should have with their users? That they're they're collecting this data for us and to give us services. If they're using it for some other purpose, that's illegitimate. And I think we get a lot further if we frame the conversation that way than if we framed it around, well, you you can't have our our data or you should pay us for our data. It's just not, no, you should take this as a sacred trust that you are using this data for us and only for us. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, in trying to make sense as someone who may not be as connected to tech or the tech world, but a daily user of applications, um, there seems to be this illusion of free markets, you know, when it comes to utilizing platforms and services online. And my question is, where do you think there has been some, I guess, miscommunication in the efforts of the uh, software uh, developers and those companies um, that are eliciting users and collecting their data? Well, when people talk about free markets, most of the time uh, it comes from a libertarian perspective and they think that that means markets free of government interference. But when the notion of the free market was really first introduced, you know, around the time of Adam Smith, what the free market meant to Adam Smith was a market free of what he called economic rents. That is, people who had too much power and were able to, to dictate terms that were not fair. And so in some sense, he actually saw the, the government was the, the, the party that made markets free. You know, so, so it's completely reversed in how we think about it today. Uh, you know, government's investigating, uh, you know, Apple and Google and Amazon. They're, they're really saying, are these markets free? Is it really legitimate what you're doing? And so what I've been trying to do is to update this concept of rents uh, for this algorithmic era. So I introduced this term algorithmic rents which is really the ability of a company like Google to decide of all the possible things that they will show you, are they going to show you the thing that they have decided is what you're really looking for, which was really Google's quest in the, in the don't be evil era, 
Or are they going to start to show you the things that are best for them or for their advertisers? And, uh, you know, the, the battle for the soul of Facebook is, is this really what you want to see? Is this really good for you? Or, you know, it's pretty clear that they're extracting an algorithmic rent, which is an unfair profit from their control over what goes into your newsfeed or what you see. I mean, there's all this stuff they could show you and they show you the things that make you most addicted. In the case of Amazon, Amazon didn't used to have an ad business and their search when you went to search for a product was really based on this is really the best product. And you know, uh, five or six years ago, they discovered advertising. And now if you go do an Amazon search, what you see are ads. And even if you search for a product by name, you know, like I, the test I usually use, I look, look for Duracell batteries, you know? And what do you see? You see a bunch of ads from Duracell. Why? Because if they don't advertise, somebody else is going to advertise first. And the actual search result, you know, uh, uh, what they used to call an organic search result, won't even appear on the first screen. Be totally fine if, 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 if they said, well, the first thing is this free organic result, and then there's these other people who are competing for your attention, and, and that, that would be a fair advertising business. But it's an unfair advertising business when all you see are the ads, and the merchant who, who's being searched for by name has to buy an ad on their own name to keep someone else from being seen, not beside them, but instead of them. And so that's I, I, I look at that and I go, that's clearly a rent, a Robert Barron-style rent. There is another kind of rent that economists talk about, and this is a guy named Joseph Schumpeter who talked about this, and I call these rising tide rents. And they're, they're really positive externalities. You know, a, a good example is in housing. You know, if your neighbor fixes up their house, your house becomes a little more valuable. Uh, if, um, you know, they, they, uh, the schools get better, uh, or a new store comes in, or there's a new freeway exit that brings, uh, you know, uh, you know, or there's mass transit that comes closer to you. All these things raise the value of your properties and you didn't do anything for that. You got what's called a rent. And it's kind of interesting because in the early days of the internet, you know, none of this stuff existed and companies like Amazon and Google were inventing this set of benefits for society. And economists go, it's really fair for them to extract a bit of rent. They're, they're kind of getting outsized profits because they're ahead of the game. And I think what I see, and this is, is the, the, the you know, thing I'm trying to study right now, is um, we have a, a, an economic system in which companies are told you must keep improving your profits always. You know, you have to keep growing. And, and if you don't, we'll punish you by your stock price going down. And since they pay their executives in stock, since they pay their employees in stock, you know, they're kind of trapped on the wheel of trying to make their stock price keep going up. And so you have this rising tide and it starts to slow down. Suddenly, there, you know, smartphone market is saturated. There's not so many new customers coming in. So the market's not getting bigger all on its own. And you say, what are we going to do to keep growing? And you start being a robber baron <laughs> and, uh, uh, and going, well, actually, if we show uh, more, you know, uh, more ads, that'll get us more money and we'll be able to keep our growth going. So, and I'm just trying to document this and, and introduce that concept, but really as a way of saying, is this really how we want to run our economy? I don't think so. Yeah, there's so many, I think, gaps in the public understanding of the actual true scale of the surveillance capitalism economy, the ad economy of the internet. And perhaps it seems as though we, we need to think more about how people with other intentions are able to manipulate those platforms. So we talked to Robert Johnson, economist, um, earlier about Cambridge Analytica and, and Facebook and how Cambridge Analytica was able to capitalize in many ways intentionally, you know, through various modes of engagement, you know, do things that are different than, you know, a physical economy. It's a political economy that is also able to, you know, influence. And so that is something that people are more aware of. And can you speak to, like, what types of places and, you know, spaces are being created to, like, be on the watch out for that type of, like, technical manipulation? Yeah, well, first off, I think we need to have 
uh, a more nuanced taxonomy of uh, what kinds of things are going on. And there are a lot of people who are studying this data economy. But l- let me just give you a couple of, of, of thoughts about some distinctions. You know, so there's this manipulation that Facebook itself might do of the newsfeed because they go, okay, this isn't in chronological order from your friends. It's from some set of things that we think are getting promoted because they're most engaging. And that's good for us. You know, not necessarily good for you. Makes, you know, I mean, anybody, any psychologist would say showing people things that are more addictive is not actually good for for people. That's one category, you know, um, self-serving use of data. Uh, to, to, to find the things that you're going to respond to the most. The second, though, is the Cambridge Analytica, which was actually kind of inadvertent. They said, oh, we're going to extend this ecosystem to our uh, to developers on our platform. That'll be good. Everybody will be playing by the same rules. And then some company, Cambridge Analytica, says, oh, well, we can actually sell this data you know, to, um, you know, to politicians. And that seems to me to be a different class of thing, which is... Uh, taking data that was collected for one purpose and then selling it for another purpose. And that's where I started to think about this. Cambridge Analytica is a pretty blatant case of, well, nobody intended the data to be used in that way except the Cambridge Analytica people. But there's a lot more gray areas. You know, we make a deal, for example, with our credit card company. Uh, You know, basically they give us a credit card, which is, again, also a free service. They make money off interest if we don't pay our bills, but they also make money from merchant fees. And yet they also discovered this sell data mechanism. You know, if you've ever gotten an ad, you know, an ad, so many people think, oh, my phone must be listening to me because I just, you know, got this ad for this thing that I've been thinking about buying or that I just bought. No, that's because the credit card companies sell their data uh, to people like Google and Facebook. And you know the companies say, "Oh, this is good for the user. We knew you. We just discovered that you bought diapers, and therefore, you know, you must have a baby. You know, so we can market other baby products to you. You know, and you can you can kind of make that case by some twisted logic, but I'm not sure that that's really what people want. Maybe they'll get used to it, but certainly, I think this idea that your data is is an asset." that your credit card company or your phone company, phone company even more, we actually pay them for their service. And then they also sell our data. And so I, I, I find it really interesting that so much of the, of the attention is on you know, big data companies and, and not enough attention on these other companies that you know, are just sort of part of the general infrastructure of our lives that have a very lucrative part of their business selling data. As I've been listening to you, like, articulate what it means to build, like, you know, in the world of technology and user-based technologies, it seems as though the second, I guess, line of this wave or the second wave of this would be to actually look closer at B2B business-to-business relationships in these industries. The narrative seems to be that there isn't any selling of, you know, data, but there is, you know, targeting of data. It is slightly misleading, but as someone who believes in economy, you know, thinks that there is like, you know, some justification for that. What do we do with those relationships that users, you know, those B2B relationships that users just really do not have anything to do with? Well, I think we're making some progress. You know, you'll often go to a site and it says, you know, give you a little pop-up saying, set your privacy preferences. And while a lot of people will just say, yeah, whatever, I don't want to click through, I don't want to go look at the details. Uh, it is interesting because when I, I almost always do click through because I, you know, I, I know that they're going to set a cookie, uh, you know, to keep track of my preferences. And so I go, if I set them once, I'm done. I find it kind of heartening that many of the sites have set as the default, you know, that they will use, they have what they call strictly necessary cookies, particularly these companies, there's a, there's a site called OneTrust that, that helps a lot of companies, media companies in particular manage this. And strictly necessary cookies, functional cookies, which allow them to do things like, oh, we have a little chat bot and it'll pop up. And then add targeting cookies and social media cookies. And that you can literally turn off the latter two. And what's interesting is a bunch of the, 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 the right-thinking companies have them off by default. You have to turn them on explicitly. In, in a lot of ways, companies will always try to nibble around the edges. But the big 
thing that we need to do is, first of all, if we if we understand the way a market like this works, and we can you know have some regulation that says this needs to be the default state. You know, you can yeah, you this is the information that you can collect and how you can use it. And there may be legitimate reasons to go beyond that, but you actually have to ask permission. Uh, you know, so setting the default uh, to be uh, consumer friendly is something that I think is a really important role for governments. Well, you know, Tim, I really appreciate your perspective and the optimism that you presented. I think that there is a lot of agency and understanding exactly your role in like things that are so large. And I really do appreciate you like for sharing, but I have one final question. Who or what will be the, the saving hope to really, I think, transform the way relationships have really been utilized as like, you know, user to tech company, you know, will it be the investor, like large scale, like, activist investor, or will it be like, you know, the companies themselves? You know, I, I think it's a combination of, of many factors, uh, but it starts with belief. You know, it's funny when I wrote my, I wrote a book back in uh, 2016, it was published in 2017. It was called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. And uh, the first podcast interview I did after this was with Kara Swisher and she said, who's this us you're talking about? We're so insignificant. We're so, you know, we have so little power. And I said, well, you know, the power that we have is to believe that something is right. You know, and I use the example of, of the American Revolution, you know, and you, you think about how, you know, this set of people, in, you know, relatively, you know, powerless country, you know, England was the most powerful country in the world at the time. And sure, they were a long way away. If they hadn't succeeded, they were going to be hung by the neck till they were dead, you know, and they knew that. Benjamin Franklin said, we must all hang together, gentlemen, or we will assuredly all hang separately, you know. And, uh, you know, they put an enormous amount at risk. Uh, You know, they put their bodies at risk, but they also, they created a new set of beliefs that everybody subscribed to. And they, they, you know, if you study early American history, it was a long struggle to get those values right, you know, but they did, and and they made some big compromises, which as we know, led, you know, um, you know, 75 years later to a terrible civil war because they kind of kicked the can down the road. And we'll probably do all that same shit, you know? (laughs) But what we can do is believe that something other than the current system is true and right. And the more of us come to believe that, eventually it, it can take over and change the world. You know, and you see that in so many movements. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. Okay, so now that we've heard from Tim O'Reilly, I guess I feel a little bit better, but I still have some questions like... How is this economy really scaled? And do I really own a piece of it? To learn a little bit more about that, we called up Rob Johnson. Rob Johnson is the president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and hosts the podcast Economics and Beyond with Rob Johnson. He is the former chief economist of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and was also the managing director at Soros Fund Management, where he managed bonds, currencies, and portfolios in emerging markets. Today, Rob, I'm here with Natasha, and we are wanting to talk a bit about surveillance capitalism. And with that, um, perhaps you could share a bit about what you understand surveillance capitalism to be and perhaps how you've seen it evolve over these past 10 years? Okay. Well, I think when uh, 
the internet came on stream and people were uh, seeing its potentials and powers. They were viewing it as what you might call a democratic uplift in the sense that people would be able to reach each other, connect, express themselves. They didn't have to convince editorial boards in order to put their stuff out into the public. They could build audiences. Uh, in other words, things were not going to be mediated. I think what has arisen is that the companies, the big internet platforms, have learned that they can monitor characteristics of the people they provide a service to. Let's just take Facebook as an example. Facebook allows you to connect to all your friends from high school, but the things you say, where you are, what your preferences are, when they bombard you with political stories, which ones you read at length and which ones you neglect, allows them to form a profile about you. And what I think people have become concerned about with surveillance capitalism is that data in other words, they provide you a free service when you sign up for Facebook, but you become the product when you become part of the data set that allows other people to analyze. And so the data becomes the product for essentially the customers who are paying for advertising or for location services or what have you. And this Surveillance capitalism sits alongside what we might call the surveillance state, and the boundaries are not clear. And in the realm of American political economy, where money and politics makes so much difference to what laws, regulation, enforcement, government appointments take place, you have a circumstance where the people who exercise this power can do an awful lot vis-a-vis our social structures, and who wins and who loses that you have no control over, but you are almost unconsciously participating in by being an object of their data. And if you do things that the powerful don't like, they can detect you and they can resist you in ways that are very, very potentially frightening and formidable. So, you know, we've been running off of the framework that was set by Shoshana Zuboff that surveillance capitalism is an economic system that is centered on the commodification of personal data. And so we see so many instances of this happening, and it's happening perhaps in ways that people feel are invasive. Can you speak to perhaps some of the policies that allow technological companies to monitor your viewing? I know that we often sign up for um, that type of engagement with apps that we that we use, but is there any reason as to why it seems so pervasive now? Well, I think it, uh, which you might call, has been an ungoverned sector, in part because it was novel, meaning people didn't really understand the implications. We, they, we've kind of discovered them on the fly. Society uh, was not prepared. You know, to use an analogy that a friend of mine, Rohit Modora, talks about, you have a food and drug administration. People try out drugs. They test them. If it has adverse side effects for human beings, those drugs don't get approved. If they're not effective in the cure, those drugs don't get approved. We have a freewheeling trial and error exploring with tech and surveillance technology is one dimension of it. And it is not something that is, which you might call, tested and explored and approved before it's unleashed on the public. Then you have the political economy of the powerful, the money, the donors. People in recent years have emphasized fossil fuels, Wall Street, and tech as the big centers of political power in the United States. Things that are profitable for them that are invasive are not being modified. In other words, I don't have somebody approaching me and say, can I add you to this data set? Do you give me permission? They just exercise that permission, not even, without even perhaps acknowledging to me that they're doing it. So it can be the equivalent of spying on you. And there aren't collective protections put in place 
we may, with people like Zuboff, uh, Emma Briant, and others who have been writing, Emma is a grantee of my foundation, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. She's written a lot about the episode of Cambridge Analytica and the elections uh, of 2016. Uh, these kind of people are raising awareness. And if the government, if you will, does not address these challenges, it looks like they are complicit with the big tech companies. It feeds the fear, the despair, and perhaps the temptation towards authoritarian rule, such as Donald Trump offered quite vividly when he ran around the country telling us the system was rigged. People felt like they hadn't heard that. That was refreshing. As you know, in Michigan, where you're located, he won the electoral votes in 2016. And there are a lot of reasons related to that, but Donald Trump did tell people something's wrong. He didn't necessarily follow through, as they call it, seduce and abandon. And yet we have a situation where confidence in expertise and governance is threatened if things are not done for the common good. Yeah, I, I just hope that, you know, we can look to certain areas around the globe, like Europe and the UK, that have, you know, really stringent policies that protect citizens on a very humane level. And there are examples, you know, across the globe that allows for some barrier between the to totalness of your digital self and, you know, a company. And so my only question for you in regards to, like, understanding that a bit more, like, you know, globally, why has there been, until Cambridge Analytica, such a, a, a blind eye turned to this situation? I don't quite know that, but I do think, uh, you know, there's an old saying in economics called Say's Law. Supply creates its own demand. Well, in Europe, you largely have consumers of these services and systems and not producers. In the money politics of America or the state surveillance of China, you have government entities that are either case nourished through fundraising or able to exert greater control or both. So the protection of the individual has been subordinate to those other purposes. I think in Europe, they've done a lot of very, very healthy things that should be emulated. And uh, the, the various digital rights plans and the disclosures and so forth are, which you might call foreshadowing, the kind of steps that we need to take. It's, a, it's good that you brought that up. Let, let, let me just add one thing. You remember there was a movie, The Black Messiah, Judas and the Black Messiah, Freddie Hampton. When I was growing up, the notion in the 60s and early 70s called COINTELPRO, there was surveillance. And there was, in the case of Freddie Hampton, murder by government officials. So they weren't protecting people. They were trying to find people with listening to phone calls or bugging your hotel room. The technology now has a much greater scale in the ability to aggregate the data and so forth. But identifying and spying on your enemies and constraining them has been a, what you might call a process in society for quite a long time. But it's turbocharged by this technology and therefore the kind of attention you're raising to it and the call to action to create a new balance, I think, is very important. So I, I guess I have one closing question. It seems that, you know, a lot of data points to our, our digital um, assets and digital data being one of the most growing commodities for, um, you know, global markets. Is there any way to project exactly what the future of that economy, the surveillance capitalism economy looks like? I think it's very difficult to project because there are a number of different uh, dimensions. By the way, I, I studied electrical engineering at MIT as an undergraduate, started out very hopeful, and I didn't see any of the contradictions. So I don't want to pretend I can see 
this future. But the point is, all kinds of things are happening in Africa now. Development. There are things related to climate change. There are things related to social systems uh, to foster, which you might call dressmakers, retailers, people who have uh, small products to reach much greater scale in delivery in India. So I don't know how to predict exactly what the structure will be, but I do think it is growing and it will be a pervasive element of society in the coming decades. Thank you, Robert, for your insightfulness today. I wish we could spend more time talking, um, but is there any uh, place where people can find out more information about um, these policies or perhaps spaces where there are um, more information about yeah. surveillance capitalism and how to learn more yeah. about these systems? Well, well, I'd encourage them to watch the movie, The Social Dilemma, because it talks about facets that we didn't explore today, like the impact on brain development of young children and on the fomenting of polarity by the platform companies just showing each side what they want to hear and fomenting what you might call a civil war. The INET website, ineteconomics.org, look up Emma Briant on our website, and it'll lead you to other places. You mentioned Zuboff's book. Uh, John Bellamy and Robert McChesney are very, very interesting writers. They write for a, a magazine called The the monthly review and in around 2014 they had a lot of prescient episodes, articles that took some of this to a new level of understanding so i i think uh how do i say and stay tuned to you all because i think you're right on the trail okay that does it for us today until next time check those apps make sure you know where those permissions are set and see if you can find out where your data is going. Quick editor's note. After publishing this episode, Securus Technologies contacted WDET, and their comments are reflected in this version of the story. And you can find links to the Intercept report detailing the collection of incarcerated people's voice prints and reporting from Jeff Fowler on the car he tore apart at WDET.org. Direct and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Russ McNamara and editing by David Lyons, David Weinberg, and Pat Batchelor. With Vox Pops from the Science Gallery mediator team, Harrison Adams, Ali Amel Avila Sanchez, and Caroline White. With mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU's Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, with support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU-FCU.